Hello, we're Equinor. As a global energy leader, we're working hard to reduce methane emissions and our carbon footprint. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Thursday, December 5th. In today's news, President Trump focuses on mounting his defense in the Senate as the House holds an eight-and-a-half-hour impeachment hearing. Bill Barr's hand-picked prosecutor says he can't back up the theory that the FBI's Russia investigation was a U.S. intelligence setup. And the Germans link the Russian government to an assassination at a park in Berlin. But first, the big idea. It was important for Sandra Diaz to be invisible. Before entering the Trump family villa, she would tie back her hair, pull on latex gloves, and step into delicate paper shoe coverings. She knew not to wear makeup or perfume that might leave the faintest trace of her presence. As Donald Trump's personal housekeeper, Diaz was dealing with a fussy celebrity owner who presided like a monarch over the Trump National Golf Club in Bedminster, New Jersey, long before he was elevated to the presidency. She was an immigrant from Costa Rica, working illegally for Trump with a fake social security card she bought for $50. Being invisible was her life's work. Moving quickly through the house in the mornings, Diaz carried out Trump's fastidious instructions. In his closet, she would hang six sets of identical golf outfits, six white polo shirts, six pairs of beige pants, six neatly ironed pairs of boxer shorts. She would smear a dollop of Trump's liquid face makeup on the back of her hand to make sure it hadn't dried out. The years of service that Diaz and other undocumented immigrant housekeepers, cooks, landscapers, groundskeepers, greenskeepers, waiters, bellhops, farmhands, and caddies devoted to the Trump organization have given them a remarkable vantage point into the lives of the now first family. They've seen poolside tantrums and holiday arguments. They've laughed with the in-laws and watched after the grandkids. Their recollections show how Trump's entrance into presidential politics, denouncing illegal immigrants as criminals and job stealers, upended their lives and prompted some of them to publicly confront their former boss. Over the past year, my colleagues Josh Partlow and Dave Farenthold have interviewed 48 people who worked illegally for the Trump Organization at 11 of its properties in Florida, New Jersey, New York, and Virginia. These workers spent years, and in some cases nearly two decades, performing the manual labor that keeps Trump's resorts clean and their visitors fed. The workers uniformly contend that their managers were all aware of their undocumented status, a topic they said came up during conversations and workplace disputes. Trump's undocumented workers were forced to smile at the stomach-churning, even racist comments from wealthy members once he became president. Then it fell to them to scrub off the anti-Trump graffiti scrawled across the mirrors in the men's locker room at Bedminster. So Diaz, along with Victorina Morales, her successor as Trump's housekeeper in New Jersey, decided they wanted to be seen, speaking out in articles in The Post, The New York Times, and other publications beginning last December. Trump and his family spent so much time at their properties and still do that many Trump Organization employees have stories about encounters with them. But the undocumented workers were often left to perform the most intimate and personal work. Those who cooked and served Trump knew that he liked his cheeseburgers well done. 
and his Diet Coke in small glass bottles with a plastic straw that no one could be seen touching. Trump loved Tic Tacs, but not an arbitrary amount. He wanted, in his bedroom bureau at all times, two full containers of white Tic Tacs and one container that was half full. The same rule applied to the Bronx Colors brand face makeup from Switzerland that Trump slathered on. Two full containers, one half full. Even if it meant the housekeepers had to regularly bring new shirts from the golf pro shop because of the rust-colored stains left on the collars. A special washing machine in the laundry room was reserved for his wife Melania Trump's clothing. Donald Trump liked Irish spring bar soap in the shower, but his housekeepers learned not to throw out his soap even if it had worn down to the tiniest sliver. Trump decided when he wanted something discarded. When that happened, with clothes or newspapers, he would toss them on the floor. A regular recipient of Trump's cast-off clothing was Melania's father, Victor Knobs. Morales noted that the two men are the exact same size. Knobs and his wife, Amalia Knobs, were favorites of the staff at Bedminster, even if much was lost in translation from Slovenian to Spanish. One day in 2013, Victor Knobs went out to play golf wearing one of Trump's discarded red baseball caps. When Trump spotted his father-in-law on the fairway, he blew up and he ordered him in front of other golfers to remove the hat and immediately get off the course. Diaz and Morales were in the villa when Canavs returned, threw the hat on the ground and cursed Trump. The housekeepers pieced together the story from what Amalia Canavs told them in English and what they then heard from the caddies who were on the course that day. Morales said the president's father-in-law was embarrassed after Trump humiliated him in front of his friends. Nobody could wear the red hat but Trump. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, the White House signaled Wednesday that it will aggressively defend Trump in a near certain impeachment trial in the Senate in the coming weeks as legal experts called by House Democrats testify during a contentious hearing that Trump's Ukraine dealings constitute an impeachable offense. Eric Uland, the White House Director of Legislative Affairs, told reporters that Trump wants his case made fully in the Senate and previewed a strategy that would include live witnesses on the floor rather than the videotaped depositions that were entered into evidence during Bill Clinton's impeachment trial back in 1999. Uland was among a quartet of senior White House officials, including Counsel Pat Cipollone, who met with GOP senators yesterday afternoon. The private session, which occurred as the House Judiciary Committee held its first impeachment hearing, underscored the extent to which Trump has largely blown off the House inquiry to focus on the Senate trial, where he expects he can easily win an acquittal. Joe Biden, for his part, said in Iowa last night that he will not voluntarily appear as a witness at the Senate trial if called to testify, which Republicans say they plan to do. As the GOP plotted their strategy, the eight-and-a-half-hour public hearing on the House side uncovered little new ground and served to harden the bitterly partisan impeachment fight. The three experts called by Democrats, Harvard Law School professor Noah Feldman, Stanford University professor Pam Carlin, and University of North Carolina law professor Michael Gerhardt, all testified that Trump committed bribery and other impeachable crimes when he allegedly conditioned nearly $400 million in military aid for Ukraine and a coveted White House visit for the country's leader on Kiev announcing investigations into his political rivals. But George Washington University professor Jonathan Turley, the witness who was called by Republicans, disputed the interpretations of those other scholars, telling the committee that impeaching Trump would be a historic mistake. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, though, made clear that 
Democrats are going to vote to impeach very soon. During a closed-door meeting with her members to discuss Adam Schiff's 300-page report for the House Intelligence Committee, Pelosi said, quote, are you ready? And her caucus, according to multiple members who were in the room, erupted with shouts of approval. Number two, Attorney General Bill Barr's hand-picked prosecutor, John Durham, told Justice Department Inspector General Michael Horowitz that he cannot back up the right-wing conspiracy theory that the Russia investigation into Trump was a setup by American intelligence. Horowitz's office contacted Durham, who Barr personally tapped to lead a separate review of the 2016 probe into possible coordination between the Trump campaign and Russia. The inspector general also contacted several U.S. intelligence agencies. Among Horowitz's questions, whether a Maltese professor who interacted with a Trump campaign advisor, George Papadopoulos, was actually a U.S. intelligence asset deployed to ensnare the campaign. The intelligence agency said definitively the professor was not among their assets. And Durham informed Horowitz's office that his investigation has not produced any evidence that might contradict the inspector general's findings on that point. The IG report is still due out next Monday, and it could rebut doubts, which Barr has shared with associates in recent weeks, that Horowitz might be blessing the FBI's Russia investigation prematurely because Durham could potentially find more, particularly with regard to that Maltese professor. Number three. As the NATO summit concluded in London yesterday, Trump abruptly canceled a planned news conference, saying he'd already answered so many questions from reporters in other settings during his visit to Britain. He then left London and took off for Washington a few hours earlier than planned. NATO leaders were almost giddy as they survived another encounter with Trump with their alliance intact. Trump's canceled news conference, eliminating one last chance for him to take aim at them, was to many a gift that he gave upon his departure. Meanwhile, German authorities announced their strong suspicions yesterday that Russian agents were behind an execution-style killing in Berlin this summer, and they expelled two Russian diplomats in connection with the case. The federal public prosecutor said there is sufficient factual evidence that the August 23rd killing of a Russian-Georgian citizen who had commanded a Chechen militia was carried out by Russian intelligence agencies or those of Russia's Chechen Republic. The German foreign ministry declared two employees of the Russian embassy in Berlin persona non grata, saying that Russian authorities have not cooperated with their investigations sufficiently despite repeated high-level requests. This killing compounds concerns about Russia's efforts to assassinate political opponents on European soil, less than two years after Britain accused Moscow of attacking former Russian agent-turned-informant Sergei Skripal with nerve agent in Salisbury, England. This would represent the first such slaying on German soil that we know about since the end of the Cold War, and it threatens to stymie relations between Berlin and Moscow, which is a fragile bond for Germany, always trying to balance political differences against its energy needs. Finally, here are two breaking developments that we're monitoring. The Wall Street Journal reported overnight that the Trump administration is considering sending an additional 14,000 troops to the Middle East in order to counter or deter Iran. That would double the number of U.S. military personnel who have been sent to the region since the start of a troop buildup in May. The president is expected to make a final decision sometime this month. And the New York Times just published a story that says U.S. intelligence agencies have concluded that the Iranians are secretly moving missiles into Iraq. This is the latest sign that the Trump administration's efforts to deter Tehran by increasing the American military presence have largely failed so far. The CIA and the Pentagon fear these missiles— 
pose a threat to American allies and partners in the region, including Israel and Saudi Arabia, but they also endanger U.S. troops. Both Iran and Iraq have been gripped in recent weeks by violent public street protests. In Iraq, many are protesting the scale and extent of Iranian influence. And that's The Daily 202 for Thursday, December 5th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Hellman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. If you want to get more news about the impeachment inquiry, you can now subscribe to a new podcast feed from The Washington Post. All of our audio updates on the inquiry are in one place, including the latest from The Daily 202's Big Idea, Can He Do That?, and Post Reports. You can subscribe at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. 